Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Not for nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. You've never bought anything on the internet before? Hey, if you were to go out with those nuns, though, I bet they absolutely rage. Do you know that there are penises everywhere, right? Do you know this about Bhutan? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And this week, the podcast is going highbrow. We're really kicking it up a notch intellectually, which uh, isn't saying much, honestly. I'll usually set a pretty low bar, but Professor Dana Polonichka is here today. She teaches medieval, renaissance, and ancient studies at Wheaton College, Massachusetts. Don't unsubscribe just yet, though, because Professor P isn't like most professors. She's a cool professor. In uh, 2019, she led a group of students to Bhutan for a study abroad trip, and thanks to COVID, got stuck there for 20 months and just returned a few weeks ago. And she's here to talk to us about that experience what it was like to return to the U.S. last month for the first time since COVID started. Yeah, what an experience it must be. And she gets into this a little bit. But to come from the other side of the world, quite literally, back to the U.S. and the kind of flippy floppy way that our country has approached the COVID pandemic, coming from somewhere that took it much more strictly in a lot of ways, yet had of a tiny fraction of the case counts and deaths that we did here. Yeah, she explains the shock of arriving back in the U.S. after having been in Bhutan for so long. And that shock isn't exactly what you'd expect. So stay tuned for that. First, let's get into hot takes. Tim, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I got two for you today. So my first one actually directly pertains to today's show. Eben, how would you feel about visiting a place such as Bhutan that is super restrictive and only allows you to do certain things and doesn't really allow for a lot of spontaneity or choice uh, as far as what you can do and what you can what you can publicly disclose about that experience. Well, that's interesting because in general, that kind of trip format is not appealing, but destinations that have that kind of restriction in place tend to be inherently a lot more interesting to me than other destinations. Like if I were to go to North Korea, for example... I could do almost nothing on my own, but I would find it fascinating to go to North Korea. Like that's probably my number one bucket list destination is North Korea. Could I have any freedom whatsoever there? No. I agree. That's basically exactly how I feel. It's it's you're you're getting despite the fact that your trip is quite guided and quite preordained, you're getting an experience that so few people have and are going to have a perspective that so few people have that it's to me totally worth it. I would love to go to Bhutan even if I'm committing myself to a completely set itinerary, even if I'm not ordering my own food off of a restaurant menu, I'm still totally down to go there. Would you go to North Korea? I would. In fact, uh, I watched a documentary not too long ago about a snowboard trip to North Korea. Uh, it was like a couple of pro snowboarders that went, and that was pretty intriguing to see because it was a similar situation. They were allowed to, to snowboard at this quote-unquote luxury resort that they have in North Korea. But every part of their trip was was guided. They were always with uh, a, a, an official. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, I, I saw yeah, I saw a documentary as well where they were leading journalists through like this um, 
I don't know, it was like an IT center and they were trying to like show off like their technology, but nobody, everyone was sitting at these computers and nobody was typing. They were just staring at like a Google homepage screen. The idea being that like these people don't know how to use the internet or technology, but they were being, they were placed there like actors as though North Korea wanted to give the sense like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're in the 21st century. We're modern. We let people have uh, internet freedom. But really, it was just this eerie scene of everyone sitting there like drones, staring at a screen, not even knowing how to use a computer. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I, I will say, like, I'll, I'll caveat my response by saying that what I would not do is I would not then come back home and write a story about how great it was there. Like, I that that's a line I don't think I would cross. No, because that's what that's what they want. That's what the government propaganda machine is designed to to promote and that's why they have people there but no i mean it would be a great story but it wouldn't be a why you should spend the spring break 2022 in north korea right right like it's it's not that's the line that you can't cross like the the experience may be beneficial for all involved but the furthering of the propaganda you know you got to draw that line or else you're part of the problem Okay, well, second one, this one's a little more lighthearted, and it's actually very exciting because there's some very big news that I uncovered on Instagram the other day, and that news is that Tom DeLonge is married again. <laughs> uh, sorry, man. He has he has married his, his new partner. Her name is Marie. And I'm wondering how long you think now before he's back in Blink-182. Do you think there's a correlation to his being single and being out of Blink-182? No, but I I remember, and I may have even had this talk with you, that when he divorced his longtime wife, the the idea was that, well, now he's probably going to go back. And that obviously didn't happen. So maybe it'll happen now. Maybe she is going to be the catalyst to get him back in the band. I mean, I don't know, man. You're the Tom Whisperer. I, I certainly hope so. I, I know a lot of artists like to move on later in life to pursue new creative endeavors. But in this case, specifically, I mean, why even bother when you're old creative endeavors are such bangers but i'll give it eight months nine months nine months till he's back in blink how's that is that too optimistic uh i mean i'd go a little longer i'd say a year and a half i think that uh it's gonna take the other two guys travis and mark they've got to be able to really get on board with the progress that tom wants to see here's the real question though how long before tom shows up on no black updates that's my pledge to you, Tim, is we will get Tom DeLong on this podcast. I, I don't really get like fanboy nervous, but that might be that might be the one that does it. There's no way you wouldn't be nervous for that interview. There's absolutely no way. You would be a mess. Yeah, no, I would. My first question for you is, do you ever online shop? And what is your opinion on online shopping? I asked this question because I online shopped for the first time ever this week. You've never bought anything on the internet before? No, I mean, I've bought stuff, but not like clothing, not stuff that you otherwise would have to go to a store and try on this week. First time ever. Wow. I mean, I, I definitely can't say that I haven't done that for years. Um, I have a couple of hacks actually for buying clothes on the internet. A, only buy from brands that you know how their sizes fit you and B, buy when in doubt, buy small, buy smaller, buy a size down from what you uh, would normally buy because clothes tend to come large more often than they tend to come small. So the odds that you're going to have to return them uh, are lower if you order a size under. 
Okay, I get that. And I get if you know your size with that specific brand or apparently super savvy people buy multiple sizes and just return what doesn't fit. I guess that's a thing. Whatever. I tried buying shoes and I could only get my size online. They didn't have that size in the store, so I had to do it. I was forced against my will. So I wait a week. It shows up. Doesn't fit. So now I have to return the shoes play this guessing game about what size I actually am, wait another week. Whole thing is just a gigantic hassle and it, it boggles the mind that people do this on a regular basis. I agree, man. But the problem is that it's getting harder and harder uh, it, it, to find the things you want in person unless you live in a major metropolitan area, which I do not. So, you know, I, I almost have to shop for certain things online at this point. So it, it, and I'm not saying that that's good. I, I wish I could go find like a good Rourke shirt at the mall and around here, but I can't. So I have no choice. I know I'm behind the curve on this by like 20 years, but I'm seeing very little evidence to make me a believer. I want to know how many people order stuff. It doesn't fit or they don't like it because how do you know it looks good on you if you can't try it on in the store and then they just get too lazy to return it. There's all these people out there with closets full of stuff they bought online that they just forgot to return. Whole thing is a scam. But anyway, before I get all fired up, next question. What is the most impulsive thing you've ever done? Because for me, it's probably buy shoes online one time. So I think there are some small impulsive things I've done as you know, probably everybody has, you know, maybe you make an impulse buy or something, but I would say the most impulsive major thing I've done was where I went to college, which was Fort Lewis college in Durango, Colorado. I made the decision to go there after going to visit a friend in, I was a senior in high school. He was a year older than me. So he was in the dorms there. Uh, I went down and stayed with him for a weekend and was like, this is where I'm going. And I will say that that has, that kind of approach has played out probably across my life, uh, particularly as it relates to travel and even career decisions. Like I, I've kind of always had this like outside reference of like, okay, like if, if, if I feel this way when I'm making this decision, I'm going to just do it. Have you ever seen that Jim Carrey movie? Yes, man. I have. Yeah. He just says yes to everything. It's not my favorite movie. Can't say no. It's like physically impossible to say no. But I'm saying that, hey, good advice, maybe. Just say yes to literally everything. Literally, every, don't even think about it. Just yes, yes, yes. That's it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I like I like to say no sometimes. Big no guy over here. Especially the older I get. I've asked a few friends to go on like fairly, not spontaneous, but with like less than a few weeks notice to go on trips. And one of my friends, this thing he does is he flips a coin. If it comes up heads, he'll go. And if it comes up tails, he won't go. And he's never not gone. It's always a yes. But he says that he's revealed to me recently that I was like, oh, it's kind of funny that this coin always comes up heads for you and you always end up going on the trip. He's like, you know what? It's not really about whether the coin comes up heads. It's about how I feel when the coin is in midair and what what my instinct is telling me I want the coin to come out heads or tails. Wow, that's great. And that's how you know what you really want to do. It's not about heads or tails. It's about, okay, if heads is yes and tails is no, when that coin's flipping in the air, are you in in your heart of hearts thinking like, oh, I hope it's a heads, I hope it's a heads, or are you saying I hope it's a tails? It doesn't even matter what it comes out. 
that that moment when it's in the mid in midair will tell you. That's probably the most divine piece of wisdom we've ever disclosed <laughs> on this show. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we're going to get right into our interview with Professor P, and we'll see you guys on the other side. Professor P, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. This is awesome. It's been so many years, and I still have an issue calling you your, by your first name and not Professor. Yes. Well, you can you can call me Professor P or DP, but Dana is preferable. I'm honored and excited to be here, so thank you. Yeah, of course. We've got a lot to talk about. First, and I always kind of wonder this about people who teach very specific periods of history as you do. What kind of got you interested in antique and medieval history? Because didn't you originally want to be like some kind of scientist or like infectious disease specialist? Is that right? Did I get that right? <laughs> it's so true. I wanted to be a level four virologist and work with Ebola and Marburg. And I cannot tell you how happy my parents are when I said I wanted to be a medievalist because my mom was like, oh, you're not going to die. And then, of course, with the pandemic this past year, they've been very happy. Uh, but yeah, I went to um, when I was at college, I was going to do biology and become a virologist. And I was terrible at it. And I hated it. And I realized in my first year of college that studying things that I couldn't even see with my naked eye, like cells was boring as anything. And so I decided to take history. And then um, I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll just do colonial US history, because who doesn't love actually Williamsburg, I was obsessed with colonial Williamsburg as a kid. And then I had to take a class in European history. And I'm looking through the offerings because you know how when you have all those annoying prerequisites or whatever, how to take a class in European history. And there's this one called Intellectual and Cultural History of the Middle Ages. And legit, my thought was, this seems the least painful of all the European course offerings. And then I took it. And within a month, I showed up at my professor's office and I said, this is what I want to do. She said, like she had no context because she thought I looked always miserable in the class. I think when I'm thinking I look miserable. You resting miserable face. Yeah, I do. I completely do. I was told this in graduate school all the time. They'd be like, Dana, why are you so unhappy? I'm like, no, I'm just thinking. Now, given everything that's happening in the infectious disease field, do you, <laughs> do you feel like you missed out on anything? Maybe thinking um, about a career pivot? I mean. No, I could have. I know. Like Ebola is fine, but like COVID is big leagues. Like you could have been on the front lines of that. You could, well, you, you could have been the hero that saved the world this year. Oh my gosh. I know. I know my mother would have hated that, but like, what could she have said? Yes. You know, sometimes I think, wow, I really could have been making a difference in the world. Uh, but instead, I'm studying long dead people as opposed to preventing people from dying. Uh, but no, you know what? I only ever cared about learning about diseases. And I think more of like a history of science or a history of medicine and not actually studying them under microscopes. So Evan pitched having you on the show as, uh, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but the big cell was that you have led students to Bhutan. Uh -huh. And I, I think Bhutan, when I think of Bhutan, I think of mountains and nature and, you know, kind of a, a, a preserved time that is only found there. But I'm curious if I'm totally wrong or what is what is the deal with Bhutan? Because so few people can go there. Tourism is barely even a thing there within the last couple of decades. So what 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 draws you there? Oh, what doesn't draw me there? So first of all, you're absolutely right to think of Bhutan as like this gorgeous environmental place 
They are, uh, you know, have incredible, the Himalayan mountains are there, incredible hiking, great rivers and lakes. It is a carbon negative country, right? That's the positive. So they're producing more oxygen than what, you know what I mean. And so it's incredible and beautiful place. uh, But it's also just wonderfully rich in, for example, it's Buddhist culture and it's a Buddhist kingdom. That's the official religion. And, you know, when you're going through Bhutan, you just see religion everywhere, whether you're smelling the incense, you're seeing caves that monks live in on for retreats on the um, sides of mountains, prayer flags, uh, Buddha statues everywhere and so forth. Uh, but it, it is, it's a really isolated country. So they didn't get, and this is something I always emphasize to people, they did not get television, internet, or cell phones until 1999, and then they got it all at once. Wow. And so we're talking about a country that was, in a sense, in what often the West we would think of as in the dark. They had very few people coming to visit. And again, no television and no internet. And then suddenly in 1999, they get it all. And so it's this country that's really, it's interesting in part two, because it's grappling with how do we acclimate to the future and the present and where things are going. And, you know, we want our Nikes and we want our jeans and we want to have all of our iPhones, but also preserve our history and preserve our culture as well as the environment. And so they're in a really interesting place for anyone who's interested in either the environment or economic development. They're in this interesting place of struggling with their core identity. And how do you embrace all of the technology that comes with the modern world while not losing who you are as a culture and a people. And it, it's fascinating and it plays out in really beautiful and difficult ways. Yeah, it's funny because you hear about cultures that are slower to emerge into the 21st century, mm-hmm. but you don't often hear about cultures that then just get slapped with the 21st century all at once yes. and how they kind of deal with that almost. Exactly. It's culture shock, exactly. but it's almost like future shock that they then have to deal with in the present. And they're just like, how do we change our entire way of life around these new technologies that we aren't used to. And it creates such an interesting, so I spent um, 2020 teaching Bhutanese students and it creates such an interesting cultural divide. Like we can talk in the United States or in various parts of the world about that generational divide. Like, Oh, my parents don't understand my life. And our parents were like, you don't understand our life, but it's so much more palpable there because we're talking about like my college students um, when they were born, their parents were just getting television and just getting the internet. And uh, even education really didn't come to Bhutan until the mid 20th century. It was only monastic education. So, and then people couldn't visit from outside the borders until I think it was the, the second half of the 20th century. So children are being raised by parents who truly grew up in a completely different world and understand none of the stresses that they're going through. So when you think of Bhutan, as compared to other countries that that were late to the technological game, a lot of countries like that, particularly in places like Africa, you Americans and Westerners tend to, to hear about these places through the lens of Western countries going in and helping these places modernize. But it seems like Bhutan has roundly rejected that approach intentionally and tried to isolate themselves away from that. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I would say for the most part, uh, they, I mean, part of what happens is this is a country that's never been colonized. So when we're comparing it to countries 
in Asia or Africa. They just never had that experience, which is also a beautiful, beautiful thing because they didn't have people coming in and trying to promote a particular Western Christian, et cetera, way of life. And so they forcefully kept that out. They keep it out to the extent, um, what you alluded to before is that they very strictly uh, monitor tourism and only so many tourists can come in and they're very conscious about the type of tourists they get. You have to pay a fee of about $250 a day. You have to have a registered tour guide and you're only taken to particular places. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess Wheaton is lucky to have the program that they do with the a study abroad because of the King's connection. The King of Bhutan had went to Wheaton College. But otherwise, I would imagine it's a pretty tough school to do a study abroad program at given their, their restrictions. Yes. Well, and it's opened up when Wheaton started the program at Royal Timpu College, we were the only college, I believe, doing any kind of exchange program in uh, Bhutan. And now there's been a few more. Uh, it is definitely harder to get students there. It's also harder to work there. Like I have to prove much more my credentials to Bhutan to teach there for a semester than I ever had to teach or to prove to teach at Wheaton where I you know, have tenure and I'm going to teach for my whole life. Uh, but it's one of the few ways also to get there and stay that long is going through this program. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about you going there. You went in 2009, right? Or 2019. No, no, 2009. You haven't been there that long. 2019. <laughs> yes. With uh, a group of students. Mm -hmm. You ended up getting stuck there because of COVID until yes. 2021. You're only supposed to be there for how long? A semester? I was going to be there for a full year. It was actually my second, year. well, okay. my third time in Bhutan, but my second semester in Bhutan. Because I first went, I did an exploratory trip for a week in May of 2016 a semester with students in fall of 2017. Then I returned for a year, fall of, so July 2019 to 2020. And you were you were gone for 20 months. 20 months. Wow. So talk about going, your role kind of going to Bhutan with students. You, how, how did you fall into that? I mean, it's not exactly part of history professors' typical responsibilities. So I like to say I'm a travel whore and I'll pretty much go anywhere you'll send me. And so I've also gone to, although for my research, I go to Europe. I also went to South Africa with Wheaton students in January of, I think, 2014, just because I could, right? Uh, but I heard about this Bhutan program and they take students from Wheaton for a semester with the Wheaton professor. And what specifically drew me is to think of this country that's so pervaded by Buddhism in, and is also, you know, run by a king, even though it is also um, a parliamentary constitutional monarchy, uh, in so many ways reminded me of medieval Europe. And I wanted to really experience what it's like to be in a culture that so openly embraces a form of religion, and that it's just every part of their culture. It's not just that people are Buddhist, but the culture is Buddhist in the way that uh, in the Middle Ages, it was a Christian culture. It wasn't just that people were Christian. And what were you teaching to the Bhutanese students? There's a history in Zonka program. So Zonka is the official language, although it's only one of 20, 24 languages in Bhutan. And that major or program has history courses, history in Zonka. So I taught a class on historiography, which is the study of history in the spring, and then actually early modern Europe in the fall. So Renaissance, Reformation, and so. Can you explain a little bit how the gross domestic happiness thing works? Because I think that's one of the top things people associate with Bhutan, but don't exactly understand. Like, I always pictured it as people kind of walking around with almost like an emoji, like pasted onto their face of like how happy they are <laughs> any given moment. Yes. As you can tell, like, all right, this guy's like a two out of 10. Like, oh, he's he's a 10. He's this guy. So someone I want to be around. Exactly. So how does that actually work? 
I'm so glad you asked because I think it's the biggest misconception. And you read all of these articles in, you know, whether it's the New York Times or travel journals or books that are all like the happiest country on earth. And that is explicitly not what it is. And I will admit that while the, in addition to the outside world projecting that, they do often, uh, the tourist industry will have, you know, things that say like happiness is a place or you can buy water that's like happiness water there. Uh, But so what it is, is the lore of it, whether true or not, is that in the 70s, the fourth king, so the father of the current king, was asked about his GDP. And he had said something like, I think it was by a journalist, and he had said, well, actually, what's much more important to Bhutan is gross national happiness. And then he mentioned it again in a 1980s interview, and it's since been created into, um, I guess I would just say a governing approach, where every five years, they do this extensive survey. It is the most extensive thing I've ever seen. I've seen the survey. And they're trying to see how their country is doing within like four different indicators. There's um, social, socioeconomic development, environmental conservation, cultural preservation, and good governance. And then that's broken up into all these categories. And the whole point of it is that their goals as a country should not be determined only by monetary concerns, but need to be about the whole health of the human being. And they acknowledge when they do these surveys, they're not meeting their marks. So instead of us thinking of it as like, oh, they're the happiest country on earth, they're a country that's trying to create happiness that has to do not just with like emotional well-being, but spirituality. I mean, they ask things on um, the, the survey, like, do you believe that nature is imbued with spirits? Um, how often do you pray? They ask questions about um, what people do all day, what kind of skills they have, if they go to their local governmental like town meetings they ask if they're afraid at night of animals like if they're walking in the street or spirits like it is they ask what kind of toilets they have like this is the <laughs> most comprehensive thing i've ever seen so if you were to answer yes you think that nature is imbued with spirits does that mean you are happier or less happy like well that's the question right? Yeah, i feel like they that's a good answer saying like yeah yeah it's spirits like that's a good you're optimistic you're have a, you're open-minded yeah. And it's definitely like what you're supposed to believe because they believe so many parts of nature are demons. But it's also just interesting because, you know, the UN has done a worldwide happiness survey. And I believe Bhutan ranked in the 90s, like the 90 something happiest country, because that's about different indicators. And they're still yeah, it's Finland every time in that survey. Yeah, I know. Damn them. Even though it's so cold there. Is there a number that they come up with? Like when they say the GDG, whatever, gross domestic happiness, is there like, how do they measure it in solid terms? Is, is it like, okay, 2019, our GDH was 80 and this year it's 75. We're sliding into depression. Like how does that work? <laughs> it's not that precise. Uh, and it's, I'll tell you, it's been a while since I looked at this, but they, you know, they divide it into those four pillars I told you out about, and then there's like 31 indicators. So it's really, really complex and complicated and all of that. And they more, I think, have like some ideas of what they're shooting for and they know they haven't reached it, but it's not as easy as GDP, like to just have a number. Hey, it's good that they're trying, you know, like That's it's, what I say. it's one thing if you're the least happy country in the world, but if like every country tried to do this and even if you failed miserably, at least you're, you know, setting set some good goals. I know. And like, when was the last time the U S government asked us if we feel like we have emotional connections to our neighbors? 
Like that's one of the questions <laughs> on it, you know? They don't care. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating system. So the the moment that when you knew that you were going to have to stay longer than you intended, what was the process like of actually kind of figuring that out and being like, okay, like when was the realization that COVID is a, is here for the long haul? I'm going to have to stay in Bhutan for another like several months. So I will say it was both a very dramatic and sudden moment and also a long and slow and annoying unraveling, especially for someone as impatient as me, because what had happened was COVID seemed very far away. And then the very first week of March, we got an email that we wouldn't have classes and the country was shutting down because an American tourist who had come had just been tested positive for COVID. And everything shut down. We went to, you know, two weeks of on, like everybody staying in their houses and such and online classes. And then we got the news in, I guess it was mid-March that the U.S. was calling people back and the embassy and everyone was saying, we want our citizens back now. And if you don't come back now, then we cannot assure you of relief lights in the future. And you have to be willing to stay abroad indefinitely. And I had been called to work that day because the Royal Temple College had decided that we needed to get in like two days of intensive workshops all crammed together despite COVID virus. So that was weird, Uh, but all crammed together and figure out what we're going to do in case the rest of the semester is virtual, which it was. And so I'm trying to go to these workshops. Meanwhile, I'm calling my parents and I'm crying, honestly, because I'm trying to decide what to do, right? I'm being told to come back. My parents are in their 70s and I'm thinking, I want to stay here. It seems safer here. If we go back to in-person classes, I want to be here for my students. And yet, of course, my mind goes to the morbid place of what if my parents die and I'm over in Bhutan. Uh, So that was a really hard time. uh, But ultimately, my parents and I came to the decision that traveling back, but also being in the U.S. were both less safe than staying in Bhutan. Since school went virtual and you were stuck there, did you have friends you could hang out with? I don't know what the COVID regulations were like, but meeting people there must have been tough. You couldn't actually see your students. What was that like? Actually, the thing that I try not to say to too many people my life was pretty normal in Bhutan. Okay, no one listens to this anyway. Yeah, okay, good, good. No, but except for teaching virtually, we went back to normal life. Like we had to wear a mask all the time. There was no clubbing, which you can imagine a 41-year-old medievalist loves to go to the club. Uh, And so otherwise we could go to restaurants. We couldn't be in large groups and we couldn't travel to different parts of the country. But like I saw my friends, we hugged. There was no COVID in the country. it was normal. And so I was actually enjoying my life. Hey, that it's a good thing that they limit tourism the way they do, because that's probably why. I'm curious how that works, because since tourism is a relatively new thing there, um, how do the citizens feel about that? Is it something that's embraced or are they really, really wanting to restrict it? And that's generally the opinion. You know what? I have only seen positive views about tourism, to be 100% honest. And people are, we're accepting, you know, it's a very obedient country, community oriented. So when we had to start wearing masks, when they closed the borders and all of that, people were cool with it. Uh, But no, they seem to be very welcoming of tourism. They know that we bring the money. I also want to be very clear that even though I wasn't a tourist per se, I'm clearly a white American. So I don't know if people would have given their full opinion to me, right? If they had a problem with tourism. Since you were uh, living it up and there was no restrictions, hardly, do you have any uh, 
standout memories from your time there or anything you'd lo- you want to share about, you know, people you met or your experiences with students or just anything you're, if people ask you when you come home, like, Oh, tell us about your, your trip to Bhutan. Like what's, what are one of the top two things you tell them? I would say, I just need to get this out there. If you all don't know this, you know that there are penises everywhere, right? Do you know this about Bhutan? <laughs> no, I, now I do. <laughs> okay. So then I'm glad I'm bringing it up. So if you didn't know this, you would be shocked when you get There's really there. no restrictions, huh? Jesus. <laughs> well, I in, in nicer circles, I'll use phallus and phallic art, but I think that gives a wrong impression because when we talk about phallic art or symbolism or objects in the West, it's understated or it's not explicit. Like people will talk about the Washington Monument as phallic. Oh no, we're talking about penises and testicles, hairy testicles that are penises that are erect if sometimes bent with sperm shooting out of them everywhere. Wow. So on the sides of buildings, uh, one of the major you know, souvenirs you can buy are little wooden uh, penises for your necklaces. I've seen that. I've seen, I seen. I like got one of those in the Canary Islands, and I've never seen it anywhere else. But this guy was selling, had a stand, and he sold these giant like wooden penises. Yeah. And that was his thing. Yeah. And that's, that was my, that's my one souvenir from the Canary Islands. I don't know what happened to it. But well, I think he might just be a weirdo. I don't know. This it is was like, a good luck charm, he said. <laughs> well, yes. Well, and this is. This is fertility and good luck. And it is one of their central symbols. And they don't see it all as, um, you know, sexual in any way. And I cannot tell you what it's like. So, so many of the stairs, like staircases in Bhutan, and if this wasn't a podcast, people could see my air quotes. Uh, are really more like ladders. And so you climb up them and you're holding on to these thick wooden, you know, shafts, let's just say, as you get to the top. And then when you put your hand at the top of the rail, like, oh, there's the head of a penis. <laughs> because that whole thing was just a really long penis. And there are penises above the doors. And wow. some of them have like ribbons tied to them. So no vaginas, though, just penises. No. And I asked my colleagues about this because we, the first time I was there, we were trying to understand. We're like, so you really don't see this as sexual? No. I said, so what if we put, you know, like women's labia, vulva, whatever on the, no, you can't do that, that that's despicable, gross, whatever. I'm like, okay, I guess that's not, not sexual then. Uh, but yeah, so the thing you have to do if you're going to go to Bhutan is look into this. And although some of the uh, phallic imagery probably predates this, it seems to mostly be credited to this guy, Drukpa Kinley. He is called the divine madman. He lived from the mid 15th to the early 16th century. And he is known for subduing the demons of Bhutan and bringing Buddhism. And he did so through his flaming thunderbolt of wisdom. Anyone want to guess what his flaming thunderbolt of wisdom was? His penis. Yeah. And so- he would use it to like enlighten women. Well, sure. By filling them up with wisdom, but also to subdue demons. Like one demon, he pulled the foreskin of his penis over to subdue. What a MacGyver he is. Jeez. I know, exactly. He is amazing. And I'll tell you that in the fall of my second time, so fall of 2019, I locked myself out of my apartment and we couldn't get back in. Like there were no keys, whatever, whatever. I was on like the top floor. And so the college, this was a college apartment, had to drill a hole around where the um, handle of the door was to get us in. So now I had this big hole in the door. 
And it was perfect because there's this story in the tales of the divine madman where he's protecting this old woman that demons want to kill. So he stands behind the door and the door had a hole in it that was the size of a fist, it said. And when the demons came up to look at her, he slammed his penis through the hole in the door and knocked out the demon's teeth, et cetera, et cetera, and saved the woman. And so I had this big hole in my door. And so I put a sign over it that said, demons beware, Jook McKinley lives here. Wow. So just in case. So did he stand on like a step stool for that? Or was it just like the hole is low enough down in the door that he didn't need to do that? I'm pretty sure you're not asking the right questions okay. here, right? Don't you have so many other questions? Oh, man. I'm still wrapping my head around this this whole concept. Yeah, I did not know this. It is amazing. And you have to read it because like the thing yeah. is, this it's amazing. And like, there's so many things to be said and we study it with my students. And cause we have to think about like, what are all the gendered implications of this and how this perpetuates a lot of sexist ideas um, and how like men are fertile and bring good luck while women are the opposite and all of that. Don't try to make this all academic. They just, the guy that they have, the people love penises. That's it. End of story. Obsessed with them. And, and that's the other thing you have to think. Of. Oh, and then there's, oh, this is the other thing that's so amazing. So we're talking about this con- like fairly conservative culture, right? And they have these uh, festivals, safe shoes, in all of the different cities throughout the year. And they do plays. And they have these, I think they're called at Saras, but I could be wrong, that are like these demons that run around. And they often will have these floppy penises coming from their forehead. They'll be carrying them around. And they run around in like this open setting and they like hit people in the face with these penises and stuff. (laughs) Here I am coming from the West where we have so much more sex in movies. We like are so much more sexually promiscuous in a lot of ways and we're all of that. And I'm sitting there so uncomfortable while you see like a old like grandmother with her kids laughing just getting whacked in the face with a penis (laughs) getting a mushroom stamp i know (laughs) i feel so uncomfortable since you've been back to wheaton or when you go back to wheaton do you think you're gonna bring that with you and start drawing penises everywhere like just bring all the phallic imagery be like no it's about fertility and good luck it's not vandalism no no it's it's not it's art it's religion it's culture you know what i should i should okay just an idea I've already started to die to try to bring it into people's lives. Like when I came back the first time, I got these two wooden uh, phallus, you know, pendants for the neck. And I got a big one and a small one. And I gave the big one to my sister and the small one to her then husband. <laughs> they divorced since then, but I don't think it was my comment about his penis size. Over under 50, how many souvenir penises did you return with? Across three trips? Yeah, the whole thing. I think under 50. Under? Okay. I think so. But it's a lot, you know. Don't have to put a number to it. But, but. so many memories and pictures. Yeah. yeah. Those are those are aside, aside from the, the fact. Some memories, some pictures, a lot of pieces. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, nothing's gonna top that. That is so funny. I would I, I would have asked you about more memories, but I, at this point, I don't even think we care. I think that thing that just yeah, takes right. The, I mean, that's, that's it. it. No. Yeah, that's hilarious. I think the number one thing I would want to know. And that's fascinating to me about this whole, your whole experience is you basically didn't experience COVID at all in the United States until two months ago. Yeah. So March, 2021 was your first time setting foot in the United States during COVID. Exactly. And coming from a country that didn't have the kind of lockdowns that we've had that pretty much kept the virus under control. Yeah. 
what is and you know we're not as bad now as we had been you know in the winter but what kind of shock is that culturally when you come back to a country that's mired in this crisis for the first time so let me start by saying this and you can edit it out or whatever i don't want to give the impression that it was totally like we weren't living with covid because i feel like we were at the two ends of the spectrum while the US and the rest of the world was always in the middle. So we either acted like it wasn't there because it truly wasn't, the borders were closed, we went out. But then we also had three weeks of total lockdown beyond anything you guys have had, where we couldn't leave our apartment. So this was in December, there was an outbreak. And so for about three weeks, I legit did not leave my apartment once. Wow. We could go out to throw out the trash. Uh, and then we ended up getting these cards that they had given to us earlier in the outbreak where one person per household that already ha- always had to be the same person could go for essentials, but only during a two or three hour window every day. And you had to carry it with you and you could be scanned and everything. And so when we were in lockdown, it was so much worse, but we were only in lockdown for like three weeks at that time and maybe two another time. And so they handled it really, really well. But so I did have a little bit of that, but, uh, but what was it like the difference So I also should say, I should um, bracket all of this with the fact that I spent half of Trump's presidency in Bhutan, which is the only thing that I think has kept me alive, first of all. I'm I'm jealous of that. Yeah, I didn't have to see that face and hear that voice all the time because it was, I'd listen to the news and stuff, but it was different. Uh, And I was in a country where people actually put community over self-interest and like listened to and even believed in science as if science is something we have to believe in uh, and did the things they were supposed to and were like obedient and all of that. But so when I landed, it was total shock in a lot of ways. So when I went through Singapore, you know, I got this relief flight, I had to get tested and all these things before getting on the flight. In Singapore, they actually called your seat number and you couldn't get off the plane until they called your seat number. You got off the plane They met you with a placard with your name, walked you to a hotel room, locked you in there until it was time for you to go to your next flight. And everything in the Singapore airport was closed, right? Doha was a little more open. I land in Chicago. I felt like, is there a pandemic going on? Doesn't look like it. You know, everybody's around and traveling and seem fine, no masks. And so that's been a shock. Interesting. So the shock for you hasn't been coming from a place where that was in a much better situation to a, a place that is doing much worse. It's been coming from a place that actually takes the virus seriously, but also it doesn't have to worry about it as much exactly. given their numbers coming to the U S which should be worrying about it a lot more. And yet no one seems to care. And even like they've done a national uh, vaccination campaign and I'm pretty sure everyone got vaccinated. So to come here where people are considering not getting vaccinated for no legit reason, blows my mind. And I'm sick of reading. I mean, you could tell I'm getting a little annoyed. People, when they talk about they have these campaigns and ask celebrities, why are you getting vaccinated? And they're like, I believe in science. And it's like, science is not something you believe in. It has nothing to do with belief. Sorry, now I'm going to rant. Yeah, no, it's, I, I saw an interview with um, Greta Thunberg. Th- is, it, is it Thunberg? Greta Thunberg? Thunberg. Thunberg? I don't, I don't know, know how to pronounce it. But she, she was like, she was asked, like, what's the difference between the U.S. conceptions of climate change in the U.S. versus in Sweden? And she basically said, that in Sweden, people view climate change as a science, as a fact, whereas in the US, people view it as a belief, as something you either yeah. believe in or you don't, like it's like it's religion. Yeah. And it's and I think that's a problem in a lot of aspects of American life. Exactly. Alternative facts, baby. 
And, you know, I think back to um, something you had asked earlier, Tim, and it's not answering that exactly, but um, you're asking about like, you know, Bhutan being isolated and the world coming in, whatever. And I can't tell you how many people like Bhutanese who have asked me in earnest, just like, so I don't understand. Like, I thought that Americans had good science educations. Like, why don't they believe in climate change? And like, I don't know, like, I can't answer that question for you. And I can reference some things in politics and conservative uh, Christianity, but I don't know. And, and it's astonishing. They're, they're afraid to ask me and they're also completely bewildered. Like, how is this possible? And it coming from a country that is so deeply faith-based and also actually has less education than the U.S. in a lot of ways. I mean, we have good science. We don't have good science education. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. 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 Hey, if I have any advice for you for how to handle like the first few months of being here, it's just since you've been avoiding the U.S. news since you were in Bhutan, just continue to avoid it. That's just in terms of upping your own gross personal happiness, just avoid avoid all the news. Well, and you know what? Here's the other thing that's so fascinating to me. So when I first got to Bhutan in for the semester and fall of 2017 so we were like six months into the trump presidency it was fascinating to be in a country that had was not sure it wanted democracy and was looking at what was happening in the u.s and is saying like are you sure we chose right because basically about 10 13 15 years ago the fourth king basically granted democracy to the country he said i'm stepping down and and so they were kind of like looking at what happened in the u.s and like maybe we went down the wrong path but then also to be in this country where you do not criticize the king. And it isn't just that they're not allowed to. People deeply love their kings. They wear pins with him on it and the former king. They have you know, uh, photographs and portraits of them all over their house. They love their kings. And meanwhile, I'm coming from a country where we are you know, trash talking the king and he's trash talking us. And, and it was really interesting to see that juxtaposition. They have a democracy like we do. And it's their king is a figurehead the same as the UK monarch is, right? It's similar. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And they, and it's so funny too, because that's the other thing I always talk to my students about where in the American story, our, our grand narrative is how we um, threw off the power of the Kings. Right. And then the story of Bhutan is they were like, no, please stay, stay King. We don't, we don't want the democracy, but since you're telling us to do what we will, cause we're obedient to you. And so it's just completely different mindset. It's phenomenal. And, and, and again, so interesting. And I think had I been there under a different president's uh, U.S. president, I probably wouldn't have noticed the juxtaposition just so much. That's always interesting to me because a skepticism of democracy is really a skepticism of your own ability to select the right people to lead you. And we kind of take it for granted that everyone in the world wants to live in a democracy, but I almost think it's a super enlightened way of thinking when people question whether they want to be part of a democracy or not, because they recognize and respect the burden of voting. And, you know, they think, hey, I might not be equipped or qualified to make this decision, <laughs> which, I mean, honestly, that's what I've come to believe about the US lately with all the like misinformation floating around online and our apparent just complete inability to think critically about issues and separate truth from propaganda. I don't know. I'm, I, this is probably not a popular opinion. I'm just not sure a lot of us are qualified to live in a democracy anymore because a democracy is predicated on the idea that the public knows what they're doing and will vote in their own best interest. And I just don't think that's the case right now. Well, and 
we'd have great ancient uh, Greek philosophers questioning if we should trust our fellow man with democracy, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, and I always think, you know, one of my favorite parts of traveling, especially to a place that's so different, so particularly Bhutan more so than when I've been to Europe, is that it, it just fundamentally makes you question uh, these central beliefs that you've had. So like, for example, uh, it's illegal, I believe, to proselytize in Bhutan. And so Christians can't go in and missionize. And I feel very strongly in the United States that everybody should have freedom of religion and also freedom to proselytize. And I feel the opposite there. And, and I feel, unfortunately, like this paternalistic, which is terrible, like protective feelings of like, here's this country that escaped colonialism and escaped any kind of Christian missionizing. And so like, you know, you almost want to keep protecting it. And, and it's been really interesting because it, it makes me question my central beliefs in like freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Well, it's because Bhutan has this deeply rooted, longstanding culture and traditions that have been almost like untouched for centuries. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that. So we don't have the mm-hmm. same type of culture to protect that they do. So I think that's probably the root of it. Exactly. Were you able to do any research of any kind for uh, publication when you were in Bhutan? Did they have resources for that? Yes. And I mean, I was able to not because they have the resources, but they have the internet and it's gotten better. And so a lot of my sources are uh, edited collections I can access online. And of course, all the secondary scholarship I could access online. I, my wonderful administrative assistants at Wheaton scanned so many books before I left. So I had like my whole Carolingian library on my laptop. But like the next stage of my research, I'll have to travel to some libraries or archives in Europe. So yeah, where do you find this stuff? Like the primary source stuff that you need? Is it like our arc, like libraries, any any old library? Or is it like the big national libraries in capital cities? Like what's so the truth of we're being honest is I make most of it up all the information just make it up. No, <laughs> yeah, I just make it up. No. So my time period is well edited. And so most of the material like the main material has been edited, and then digitized. So I can literally get it from uh, a website. I need to go because I'm working on a monograph about a particular source and there's three copies of it and two in France and one in Spain. And so I want to be able to actually go and see the manuscripts and do the necessary um, like manuscript work that I need to. Isn't it kind of special to like, if there's three documents left of something in the world, three documents that you can access and you are there seeing it like isn't that a cool moment like you flew into paris to find this thing and you're there and you're like in the archives it's like you have this like national treasure moment yes it's and there's usually like the illuminati and stuff are involved when i'm doing it and there's like the sacred feminine and all of that and the constitution and whatever uh but no that's the thing that always brings it to life for me and my favorite is you know i just teach i mean as you know i teach all of ancient history in the west and then the middle ages and so i'm teaching like four thousand years and to be able to see things like, you know, the Code of Hammurabi, the Stele, uh, and different pieces of art and to photograph them and to be able to explain what it's like to students, is, it just adds so much to the teaching. And something I often talk to students about is the first time I went to Notre Dame in Paris, it was uh, this, the year between my undergraduate and my graduate school uh, career. And, I, and one of the things in a Gothic cathedral like that, they're trying to capture the essence of God right? They're reaching high to the sky. They have these incredible stained glass windows. And I rem- and there's a whole uh, like uh, theology behind Gothic architecture. And I walked into Notre Dame, um, Notre Dame in Paris, and I thought, 
this is it. Like they captured it. This is what it feels like to be in the presence of God. And I thought this is coming from someone who like, for example, lived in New York city for a summer. So I have seen skyscrapers, right? I have seen brilliantly covered colored billboards. I have seen neon lights. I have seen things that a medieval person would have never seen. And yet it struck me to my core like that. And so for a medieval person who didn't see that kind of color in their lives and didn't see that kind of height in buildings to go in there, it must have felt even more incredible. I cried when I saw that building for the first time. And I, I'm not a yes. religious person, but sitting there on a bench oh. on the other side of the river with my wife, I was in tears. Oh, I mean, it's incredible. And to think like if you had that after you were able to do things like get in a plane and fly there. So you've already overcome space and and time in a way they couldn't have. How much more powerful was it for them? Right, a journey for like days or weeks to get there, yeah. Yes. How do I capture that experience for students who haven't traveled, right? Who haven't been in Notre Dame? Like how can I convey some sense of that wonder and recreate that? And I don't know how to do that, but it's something I'm now thinking about. That's actually a really good segue to our listener questions. So every Ooh. every week we you we ask the guest one listener question, which is submitted by listeners uh, vaguely related to what we're going to be talking about the next week, and we get your thoughts on it. So this week, the question is: Whenever I come back from a long trip, it seems to always come up in conversation with people back home. How do you balance telling people what they want to know about your experience? with over-talking and boring people to death. And I'm going to add to that, when you're communicating this, you know, your experience to students or using it in an educational sense, how do you teach it? How do you convey it without it coming across like you're just showing them slides of your vacation? Okay, this is what I'm going to say. This is my honest truth about anything. I think most people when they ask you a question, don't actually want an answer. Exactly. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. We, we've come to that conclusion repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah. We did a whole episode actually on like how to talk about your travel with people or actually it's called how travel can ruin your life. Yeah. But it was actually, um, and we kind of came to the conclusion that like people ask and they do not want to hear it. <laughs> so No, no. And I'll tell you what I do, for example, the biggest thing I ever get is, oh, what do you study? And so I will say, oh, early medieval Europe, specifically the period of Charlemagne. So it's like 8th and ninth century France and Germany. I stop there. If they don't ask a follow-up question, I know that's all they wanted to know. They were either being polite or they're not interested. And that's okay. I don't care. I don't need to talk about myself. I already know what I've experienced. And I'd rather learn about you. But that's a way. And then if they follow up, I'll add more. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times like someone has asked me, and that's my answer. They don't follow up. I say, oh, like, what is your research about? And they'll go on for half an hour. It's not even disingenuous. Like I think when they ask, they they think they want to know. So they'll say like, oh, what do you guys do for work? Oh, we write for a travel website. Yeah. That's it. That's It's an easy question to follow up on. So they'll say like, oh, what's your favorite place you've been? Or like, oh, where have you been recently? And then it's like, okay, how do you communicate this in a brief way that still gets across like some interesting information? Yeah. But then even after like 30 seconds, you can just see their face glaze over and they're like, all right, they don't care. They ask, but they don't care. So. Yes. Yeah. As from you having been, you know, in a way that long, it's like a natural thing for people to be like, oh, yeah, like, so how, how what happened? Like, how was that? And then you're like, I have so much to say, but you have to cut it off somewhere. Yes. And so, like, sometimes I'll think about, well, what's the thing they'd most want to know? Like, um, Eben had told me that you, Tim, like to um, be outside and stuff. So if I had known that, I'd probably say something about some of the hikes in Bhutan, right? Uh, and so I think about that. 
Um, but also the other thing that's weird is once you've lived in a country for 20 months, that's become your life. So it's not like telling about the cool things you did on a week or two vacation. Right. And so your life is actually rather mundane. And things that were interesting and surprising to you at the beginning have become commonplace. So there's just less to say. It's, it's different than going away for a weekend where you could almost say a lot because it's like you jam pack a lot into a vacation. Then like, oh, yeah, I was studying abroad for a year. It's like, oh, how was it? Like, I don't know. It was my life for a year. Like, it's I went to school and I went to work and then I went home. It was it was the same as everything else. Yeah, It's so true. Well, the other thing, um, it's funny, too. I've noticed this particularly um, when you meet new people. And I, I, I've noticed this especially for like things like online dating or whatever, you know, you go on dates and you're trying to get to know someone. I think it's so the case that we never really listen to one another that I often on a first date will probably spend 10% of the time talking and listening 90% and I'm never asked any questions. And I sometimes wonder how much of that is like, it's the first time someone's being actual being asked actual follow-up questions. So is that a red flag for you? If you find that you're talking yeah. 10%? It's yeah. a red flag because with my friends, I find, and I do ask a lot of questions. Like here, I've talked a lot because it was an interview. So I felt like I had to, um, but in general, like I already know about myself. So I'd rather hear about you. And with my good friends, they will at least, or like, not even just good friends, like considerate people will say, oh, I've been talking so much, I want to hear about you. Even if we never get back to hearing about me, at least there's that consideration. But if I get through an hour and you've never asked me one question about myself, hmm. And then my favorite is then those are always the um, dates that are followed up with like, oh, I felt like we vibed so much. I really want to see you again. And I think, what do you know about me that I listen to you and ask questions? Like, that's all you know. Tim and I are kind of pissed that you didn't ask us more questions today, but I know exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're hoping you would deep dive into our lives, but I wanted to. He told me not to when we chatted before. Yeah, that's what I've been thinking this whole time. Like our egos are massive. I bet we 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 schedule interviews with people, hoping that they will then take over and like put us on the hot seat. That's like the whole thing. Well, and the thing is, I actually set aside ten hours for this, and I figured we we're about to switch to asking questions about you guys. Is that not true? Yeah, that's just a, this is a good prelude to the Tim and Evan section, but yeah, exactly the real stuff. So, <laughs> dating life in Bhutan is there like apps there like for that? Do you are you is there online dating? Is there no. any whatever? I don't know what kind of like school you were in when you were going in person. Like, did you try to get out there and date, or was that not a, not a thing you were thinking about when you were over there? So I will be honest and say I personally wasn't thinking about it in the extent that I had a lot of personal and work goals that I wanted to achieve. And so that wasn't interesting to me. And then I also do have a bad habit of if I fall for someone, they can like take over my life. Like I just want to spend all my time with them. And I really didn't want to focus on one person. But that said, had I wanted to date, it would have been terribly hard. There are no apps. And then most people seem to meet in clubs, which is not really my scene. Uh, they're really fascinated and confused by the fact that I'm 40 now, 41 and single and don't want kids and like, don't really care if I'm married. Like this is perplexing. It was the only the st question my students had about me. Was like, do you have a husband? Like, no. Do you want to get married? Why not? And like, do you have a boyfriend in college? Like they were perplexed, but I'll tell you one funny thing. So we, well, I think it's amusing. So we were at, uh, we had an event for, uh, global menstruation day or something for the Bhutan Nuns Foundation because a lot of nuns 
don't have any knowledge or like the techniques and whatever technology they need for uh, menstrual hygiene. And so we were doing a celebration, there's food. And I was helping because we had like, I met the prime minister of health and like, it was really interesting. Or I said, I should say, I guess the minister of health and we were cleaning up and it was the nuns and the lay women that worked at Bhutan Nuns Foundation and me. And one of their friends was like, so interested in me but apparently is married. Oh, okay. A little scandal. I know. That's so funny too. And, and, but the funny thing is they were interested in me because they were impressed that I was helping clean up. That's just what they're looking for in a partner. It's like, what do you, what's your number one thing? Like personality? Nah, looks, nah, nothing. Just someone to help clean up the dishes. That's it. Did she do the dishes? And then I also thought like, is that a comment on your ideas about domestic work? Or is that your ideas of Americans? Like we white women don't do anything. Like I had so many questions that I did not ask. That's pretty funny. I'm I'm still surprised that there's no so you, there's no Tinder there. Like there's no like you can't just you just can't get Tinder. One of my friends would meet women through Instagram. He would just slide into a DMs all day. Yes, I cannot tell you. He had a lot of luck. Like not long term relationship luck, but um yeah. But also, you do pretty well as an older white guy there. Hey, if you were to go out with those nuns though, I bet they, if, if you were a club person, I bet they absolutely rage. They might not like bring home guys, but they have a good time. Right. Oh, on the dance floor though. I know. What does that say? A nun's married friend. Well, on that note, that scandalous note, we'll close this out. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is fun. Okay, well, here we are in the takeaways, and that was an absolutely fantastic chat. And I've got to say, Evan, my first takeaway from that one stood out to me the entire time, and it is we need to have more professors on the show. Yeah, I think when you say like, like, oh, yeah, this week we have a professor of medieval history on, people are like, all right, unsubscribe. But it, it's really a fascinating kind of juxtaposition of just really interesting travel insights that you get from any traveler. and also, But it's also paired with this... Uh, expertise of history and culture that we don't normally get from our guests and that we certainly can't bring to the conversation. So it was a really unique and one of my favorite interviews. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I'm in the club that can call her Prof P, so I'll just roll with Dana, but she's very well-spoken and knowledgeable. And it was really awesome to hear the perspective of Bhutan from somebody that has spent an immense amount of time there. Yeah. Well, for example, I mean, we would normally, if someone who had gone to Bhutan and noticed all the penises would talk to us about that, but then she kind of launched into this like, well, and this is how it relates to gender roles and to patriarchal concepts of, of Bhutanese society. And it's like, okay, like this is now we're, now we're getting, they're digging a little deeper here and that's something we don't usually get. So that was cool. Right. Right. And then uh, another thing that really stood out to me today is the perspective we were able to gain on a place that many people, particularly, I would say, outdoorsy type travelers, uh, want to travel but cannot for one reason or another. A, it's very cost prohibitive. B, there are a lot of restrictions on who can come, when and what you can do in Bhutan. So it was really interesting to get the perspective again from the inside of what it's actually like there and why it is the way that it is and kind of how that country has thrived in its own way, partly because they never succumbed to Western colonialism. Would you describe yourself as someone who seeks outdoor adventure when you travel? Yes. What? Oh my God. You learn something new every day. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And you said to me, I think offline that 
Bhutan was a, a bucket list destination for a lot of outdoor travelers, people who like to hike, things like that. I, being not part of that community at all, wasn't aware of that. Right. So it's a it's a Himalayan destination. So you have some of the world's tallest and most extreme mountains there. So anybody that's into trekking or climbing is going to be drawn to that type of an environment. However, with Bhutan, because they are so restrictive with who can come and when and what you can do, they don't have the crowds that are trekking from, you know, the bottom of the Himalayas to Everest Base Camp or doing the Annapurna circuit or these other trekking routes that are very popular in Nepal. So it's basically a similar environment without hordes of tourists. Yeah. And if I understand correctly, you do have to go there as part of a tour group to visit, which might be unappealing to a lot of travelers, but you know, it's kind of like that. I know Tibet is the same way. Uh, Both places are highly worth visiting, even if you do have to kind of make special arrangements and be a little bit more restricted when you travel. So don't let that deter you. Um, and the country is highly dependent on tourism. So definitely go there if you can. My last takeaway is not to not to keep bringing it back to the penis thing, but what's fascinating about that whole tradition is it also reminds me of what Gareth, the, the dating coach that we had on a few months ago, talked to us about uh, with regard to Eastern versus Western conceptions of sexuality, whereas Eastern are much more open and much more free with their sexual expression and less likely to consider those kinds of images as vulgar, whereas Western society is much more repressed and much more likely to think that any kind of discussion of say, open discussion of sexuality is especially open depictions of sexuality is going to be vulgar and obscene. So that was one thing I wanted to bring up in the interview, but forgot to do. Right. And it's it's funny because that is such and in the same way, it's flipped because in Western media uh, and society, there is sex and violence all the time. And in those in, in a lot of Eastern countries, particular ones like Bhutan, where the entire society is built around a religion, there is not that. Yeah, well, I think that's about it for takeaways. There's, I'm sure, a ton more that we could do. But for now, we will say goodbye and see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to another episode of No Blackout Dates. It's at this point, we'd usually say to go follow Dana Polonechka on all her social channels, but she's not an influencer. She's a professor of medieval history. So go rate, go go on ratemyteacher.com and go give her a good rating if you want. Yeah. But otherwise, give us five stars, subscribe, and let us know what you think. We will see you guys next week.